Today, I'm really excited to be talking with another cardiac arrest survivor who is a IT security professional, and that means he's not a security guard, as he likes to point out. And his name is Jonathan Jenkin. And although IT security professional sounds a little bit boring, actually, when I was looking, researching you for the uh, introduction there, I found that you had actually posted into the group once that you described yourself as a cryptographer and ethical hacker. And that you had actually got an IMDb appearance because you've been in a TV series. So you're anything but boring. So welcome, Jonathan. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Great to be here. Just tell me briefly about your TV series appearance. Yeah, so that was a group of friends subsequent to university set up a small company called FX Home, which is essentially uh, a video special effects software for home users to use. Originally, it was for putting lightsabers and those types of things. That's what they wanted to do. And the company actually grew and has been very, very successful. And so the company decided to spend a bit of time and make a small web series. And they needed some extras and some actors to do this small web series to show off their their special effects software. And so we did this thing called, it was a steampunk series. I forget, you know what? I forget the name of the series. That's dreadful. It was called Escalation because of the date that we we did it on, but I can't remember oh, the name. Arms, arms race. race. Thank you. Arms Race. I played a baddie. So if you go to YouTube and you have a look for Arms Race Escalation, I'm in the very first episode. I'm playing a Russian uh, baddie. I'm the main baddie in the first episode, and I get killed <laughs> by pummeled over the head with a hard hat. <laughs> yeah, so that's what that's about. Yeah, I noticed that you were beaten to death with a pith helmet. <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> Yeah, well, as we we may discover later, there are worse ways, I imagine. (laughs) And uh, and I also touched on the fact you're uh, an ethical hacker. And you you mentioned, or you did that post in the group because you were doing analysis of your own ICD. It's not something that your average Joe in the street would do. How did that go? Did you get anywhere with it? And why were you doing it? From a very early age, I was the type of kid that used to take cassette players and, and and everyone else is playing Michael Jackson and all these other, you know, pop artists or whatever. And I was never satisfied and I had to take it to pieces and understand how it, how it worked. And so once I had this, you know, piece of NASA science underneath my chest, I felt like I needed to understand it more. And so I already had most of the equipment that I would need. I had to purchase a couple of other small pieces of equipment to be able to do it but was able to set up a little bit of synchronization to to understand how the ICD was polling and how it was communicating. And then I managed to find a few other people online who were doing similar pieces of work. Admittedly, most of them didn't have one under their chests. They had them on their desks. But yeah, we, we there was a white paper that was written at the time, and I contributed a little bit of research to it. It's interesting, you know, because if you've got a website or you've got uh, a piece of software, it's actually really easy to update it. If someone finds an error or a vulnerability in it, it's very easy to update it. Whereas this thing under your chest that's actually keeping you alive and certainly 
you know, managing the risk of you having another cardiac arrest or, or other cardiac event, it's much more difficult to update the software if a vulnerability has been found. So I think these manufacturers have to really stay at the top of their game uh, when they're pushing out new versions of software. The amount of testing they must go through is must be just inordinate. But that's what that's how it came about was me just being incredibly curious about the way in which stuff works and not being satisfied with it just works that way. It sounds like you're you're the ultimate geek, really, and uh, we're, not, <laughs> we're not really here to speak about geekery today, but no. it, it, it might actually be a, a really nice episode to do, actually, to do the sort of uh, the techie hardware side of, mm. of, uh, of the human implants that we're seeing more and more common, because, you know, obviously you've got the, the ICDs, the pacemakers, the CRTDs and the mm. loop recorders and all of those sort of things. So I know you're very interested in the uh, security side of things. And I know there's other people who are interested in the, the data side of things about patients who don't get access to their own data, which is uh, a big cause for concern in some areas. Access to that data is it is it's something I was challenged with as well. It was something I wanted access to that data to be able to do my own analysis. I wanted to be able to run an analysis tools that I have access to, to be able to look at, because my cardiac arrest was idiopathic. We still don't know why mine happened. And so I wanted to be able to run some analysis over and see if I could work out what was wrong. But yeah, getting hold of that data is just ridiculously difficult. Is it impossible? Have you done it? I didn't manage to get hold of the data. I think, and and I'm sure other listeners probably went through a similar process, which is that the ICD that's under my chest doesn't belong to me. It actually belongs to my consultant. And it's essentially on loan. It's giving me therapy while it's under my chest. So the data belongs to the manufacturer, and they then share it with my consultant. And it's it's up to my consultant if he wants to share it with me. And the data, although it's about me, doesn't belong to me. So it's a really weird set of loops and hidden instructions in uh, end user license agreements and things that really isn't very helpful, I don't think. It should be open, mm. in my opinion. Absolutely, yeah. Well, as I say, that that's a whole whole different subject, really, that that we can go into perhaps another time. But anyway, we're here today to talk about about you and your your ability to survive, basically. Because although I mentioned that you're a cardiac arrest survivor, the past I don't know six months, nine months, uh, you've actually gone through another significant event in your life and trauma. And I understand that you're surviving that at the moment, although I imagine it must be even more difficult than the usual survival path of that, being in mind the COVID-19 pandemic that we're going through. So I understand that you've had uh, cancer. Can you tell me a little bit about that as well? Yeah, sure. So it was around this time last year, I was doing some uh, revision with my daughter for her GCSEs. And we did some biology revision and it was, you know, do the lymphatic system. And I said, you've got lymph glands here, here and here. And I, and I felt on the right side of my jaw, uh, where you've got obviously a nice set of lymph nodes there and felt a large lump. It was about the size of a grape or thereabouts. And I really didn't think very much of it and just kind of let it go. 
And then a few weeks later, I noticed it got a bit bigger. And so ultimately, I decided to go and see my GP a few times. And they said, oh, it's probably just a, an angry lymph node, nothing really to worry about, but we need to keep an eye on it. And so a few weeks passed, and it just gradually got larger and larger, to the point that I then had to go and see a clinician and a consultant and had biopsies. And yeah, so I had uh, cancer of the tonsils, which the tumor was on the right side of my neck and sort of spread down to the front of my neck up underneath my ear. So at the point that I was getting my radiotherapy and my chemotherapy, it had got so large that it had blocked my right ear. So I'd gone deaf in my right ear and it was actually starting to affect my ability to swallow and to talk. My throat was very sore all the time at that point. And yeah, I went through the, the radiotherapy and chemotherapy, which was just awful. Just how people go through that an absolute nightmare of treatment more than once is just uh, heroic. And the staff were absolutely amazing in their support of me. I mean, obviously, I've got my ICD, which did complicate some of the therapies and some of the scans, having MRI scans, et cetera, et cetera, on a daily basis and uh, having to have uh, radiotherapy applied on a daily basis and then chemotherapy. They just had to monitor me as a very special person. So that all kind of completed the therapy, the active part of the therapy completed in October of last year but actually things tended to tend to get a little bit worse before they get any better so I was not able to eat food I lost my voice on a number of occasions you know still vomiting a lot lot of, lot of vomiting blood I lost a great deal of weight so I think to date I have lost 24 kilos in weight and I've all this the radiotherapy has also knocked out my taste buds so I can't taste food at the moment and I don't make mucus in my mouth either so it makes eating and drinking very difficult to do you can probably hear I've got quite a nice radio four voice now in comparison to what it was before but yeah so there are some side effects with it it means I don't have a great deal of appetite and I struggle to to really get the calories into my body to start gaining weight again there is the opinion that it may very well come back over time. Certainly the taste is beginning to come back, but the mucus is still a real problem. I wake up several times in the night with just an entirely arid mouth and have to drink or sup on something. But yeah, so I'm still going through the recovery of that. I'm still not um, out in the daylight from it, trying to make the best of the situation supporting local charities. And with COVID-19, obviously, I'm in the extremely vulnerable category now. But having been isolated as a result of my chemotherapy, I've had a bit of practice last year in how to do this isolation thing. So I think I should be okay. I've been indoors now, I think this is day 61 or 62. So I'm not, I'm not supposed to go outside at all. So I have, certainly haven't left the front of my house at all. I've been in my garden and my back garden, and I've been mostly isolating within the house from other house members as well, trying to stay separate as much as possible, use a separate bathroom and separate eating food, etc. So, yeah. That sounds incredibly tough, what you've gone through. When was your last treatment of chemotherapy? 
So the last treatment of chemotherapy would have been at the beginning of October. And I actually did, although I was scheduled to have six, I only had five in total because I got hospitalized in week four out of the six. I really had very adverse reaction to the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy. And so I was hospitalized. So I, I was in bed. They gave me as much fentanyl as they were allowed to give me. They gave me codeine, oromorph, paracetamol through the night and through the day. I was just, I, I re, if, if I had an option of being in a coma or being awake, I would have opted for the coma any, any stroke of the day. The last chemotherapy was in October while I was in hospital. And I think I was in bed for a little over four weeks. So I didn't step out of a bed for four weeks. Again, that's caused some nerve damage in my legs. So I've got my right thigh is entirely numb. You could probably stick a knitting needle through my right leg and I wouldn't feel it. Uh, and it's uh, unusually, it's quite painful, actually, the, the sensation of the uh, sort of electrical sensation of the numbness is can be quite uncomfortable, certainly being sat on a train, which I've done a few times now on my way to work at the beginning of the year. That was excruciatingly painful to be sat in one place for, for an hour. Not something I really want to repeat if I can help it. Is that just the atrophy from laying in bed for so long? Yeah, it's, it's so it's very likely a compressed uh, vertebrae in my back, apparently relatively common. But again, it's one of these things that can come back. And again, it's another reason to get active and to start exercising, especially while we've got COVID and I'm not really allowed to go outside at all, trying to find ways of exercising and getting my fitness up will hopefully exercise that neural pathway to be able to re- rebuild some of the sensation in my leg. You mentioned, um, well, you were in hospital for quite a while and you had a lot of treatment and you mentioned that having had a cardiac arrest and having an ICD added to some further complications. Can you talk talk a little more about those? Yeah, sure. So the first point that I realised that having an ICD was going to be an issue was having the PET scan, sometimes called a CAT scan. So that's a scan where they inject you with some glucose that has a radioactive isotope attached to it. So you starve for 12 hours and then you're you're injected with this isotope. And and obviously cancer cells love sugar. They love that fast sugar and so they will uptake it. And then you have to lie in an MRI where they're scanning to find that isotope. So they're looking for those hot spots of where the glucose has been uptake. And the ICD causes a problem because a lot of people that have ICDs that, first of all, they're not MRI safe. Thankfully, the one that was fitted for me was MRI safe, but they still have to turn it off and they still have to monitor me while it's been turned off. So they have to put lots of sticky buds all over my chest to monitor my heart rate and my pulse and to make sure nothing is going to happen while I'm under uh, and also they kind of want to scan, you know, those leads create a little bit of interference. So the, the result of that scan, there's a little doubt that's put in their mind around the quality of the scan as well. So it does mean that what is normally, obviously the, the starving and the injection of the, the radioactive isotope, et cetera, takes about an hour or so to, to happen. But the scan is usually sort of five, 10 minutes, it's not really very long at all. And actually, I find it quite relaxing to be just laying there being told not to move. It's quite quite a relaxing experience. 
but it's extended. It's, it's just like, it can be twice as long. It can be six times as long. Certainly when I was having the daily dose of radiotherapy, they have to clamp your entire upper torso in uh, a mask essentially that, that covers everything from your shoulders all the way up to the top of your head. You're clamped in one position. You literally can't move. You can't open your mouth to do anything at all. It's just clamped there. And again, an MRI is done to make sure that you're in the right position. And they again have to turn off the ICD by putting a magnet over it and then wrap you up in all of these leads. And normally the process of getting that radiotherapy is probably about 10 minutes, if that. But I've certainly had some of the sessions where they just couldn't get me in the right position, where we were well over an hour of shuffling around trying to get me in the right position. Most of it was because the ICD kept or they would lose the the signal for the pulses that were dots on my chest or the the, uh, magnet would slip or, or various other things would happen. And so the ICD did cause a complication in the delivery of some of that treatment, but Hopefully, well, the results are the results. Hopefully, speak for themselves. Which is at the beginning of January, I was given an all clear. I had a second PET scan, and they found no cancer in my body. So, it was obviously successful, and 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 I put that down to the diligence of the the radiotherapy team and the, the nurses that looked after me. They were absolutely world class, and uh, they really did look after me like a like a like a prince. And they put up with my jokes as well, which is very kind of them. But yeah, so they the diligence that they had about making sure that I was in the right place before delivering any of the radiotherapy, it took a long time, but it was important to go through. So it sounds a little bit like torture at times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe that's true. <laughs> and also, if anyone was a, a little bit anxious about that sort of procedure, it, it sounds like, wow, you've, you've got to have some sort of... Uh, I don't know what, what the phrase is, really. How did you cope with the anxiety of it all? You said you, you quite enjoyed the five minutes of yeah. peace. But if you're in there for an hour or so, that doesn't sound that peaceful. No. Uh, so, I mean, I have a relatively positive attitude going into most things. Certainly when I found out I had cancer, there was no, you know, I didn't break down in tears and there was no crying or anything. I think they were quite... Uh, surprised at my response, which was like, right, so what do we do then? What What is it we're going to be doing? Tell me what the, the absolute gold-plated, what's the right thing to do right now? And they were like, well, to start radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Right, what do I have to do? And there was no doubt in my mind that, you know, I'd have to be complacent and compliant with all the best advice that I was getting from the professionals around me. So in terms of anxiety, I didn't really have any. Uh, I just knew that whatever it is that I was going to go through, I had to go through. I didn't have a choice. And I know that a lot of people are, you know, they get anxious about enclosed spaces, but you'd kind of have to put a lot of that to the side and you just go, well, it's, it's either the fear of an anxiety that's immediate in front of me of being in an enclosed space, being clamped to a table and being asked not to move for an hour or cancer, which would mean death. So which one Which one are you more anxious about? Being enclosed for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, or, or being, you know, given a terminal diagnosis? 
I was told midway through my treatment that had I not caught the cancer at the time that I did, I wouldn't have seen Christmas that year. It was an incredibly aggressive cancer and it would have suffocated me ultimately. So, you know, it was absolutely the right thing to be doing. Yeah, when you put it like that, it's 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 fairly obvious what choice you have to do and what you have to sort of uh, adjust your mind to accepting, really, doesn't it? Yeah, and you know, I did. uh, I don't want anybody to think that I just sailed through it. I, as I said before, four weeks in, I was in hospital. Uh, Even a week before that, I was just crying and bawling, and and the pain was excruciating, and I wanted it to stop. There's absolutely, you know, I had multiple conversations with my wife saying, I just wanted it to stop. I wanted it to go away. I just wanted it to, the pain to end. And it was her courage to be able to say, you know, loads of other people have gone through this. You're not the first to go through this treatment. There are children that have gone through this process. You can do this as well. You've done so many things through all of the the other conditions that I have, the cardiac arrest, you're not going to give up at this point. You've got to keep going. And so, yeah, that put a little courage into me to to just sort of man up and and get on with it, really. Your wife features quite a lot in your survival stories, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. Yeah, she's she's uh, someone put actually on Twitter recently and said, "Who is the person that you most?" you most you feel is most responsible for the success of your career i see lots of people saying oh it was this teacher this person absolutely 100% my wife my wife has been uh responsible for the success most of the successes that i've had in my life and uh, yeah i owe a great debt to her yeah we'll we'll come back to her in in a minute i guess because well just before we move on to to talk about your cardiac arrest, you, you mentioned and sung the praises of the the treatment from the radiographers and nurses that you received, but you didn't actually mention where that was. So, do you want to just give them a shout out? <laughs> sure, absolutely. So, they are the team at Ipswich Hospital. So, they are the radiotherapy team. There's a number of particular individuals there: Adele, there's Dale, there's. There's loads of people within the team that were really pivotal in my my recovery, and you know, without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. So, their due diligence, Ipswich Hospital, and I've done some fundraising for them as well. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it got me into a bit of trouble, which was uh, I was on BBC Radio talking about the, the the treatment that I'd received, and and actually that I'd put a a bit of a bet down in vertical commas. I do park run quite a lot, and I said that at the next park run, I was going to give uh, ten pounds for every PB that occurred at the the park run that day. And I felt I was quite safe. The you know the last few that we'd had, there'd only been sort of twenty or so, so I was expecting to be donating about two hundred, maybe three hundred pounds, possibly. Well, it turned into about. Well, eight hundred and ten pounds in total. Oh, yeah, so uh, it Ouch. managed to. Well, it spurred a lot of people on. I think so. Yeah, we had sort of eighty-one or so people crossing the line in a in a personal best on that particular day. So, yeah, it cost me a bit of money, but absolutely one hundred percent the right thing to do. They, those guys deserve the support that they get. They're amazing staff, all of them. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you, you touched on a couple of subjects, which hopefully we can come back to later, which is your, your running, your media appearances, because you, you seem to have done quite a lot of those, and uh, also your giving back, raising money and that sort of thing. So if we can talk about that a little bit later, but I think your cardiac arrest was about five years ago now, was that right? And perhaps you can just talk us about a little bit about what life was like before that. And then about the event. Sure. So a bit of patter that you probably need ahead of it is I used to work in Cambridge and part of the work that I was doing in Cambridge required international travel. And so we had a fitness for travel assessment, which I just dodged and dodged and dodged. I just didn't want to do it. I just felt like it was a bit of a theatre and I didn't really want to be involved. Anyway, it got to the point where I had to do this um, uh this test, uh, a urine test to make sure your kidneys are working. And sure enough, it came back that my kidneys don't work the way that they should. Loads of investigation later. We can talk about that later, maybe if you want to. But I have IgA nephropathy. IgA nephropathy is a immune system, kidney system issue where my immune system is essentially attacking my kidneys. So my kidneys don't work the way that they should they essentially believe that there is a blockage in my kidneys and so increase my blood pressure to try and flush it through. But in trying to do that, it creates more scarring on my kidneys, which then tells my kidneys that there's a blockage, which increases my blood pressure. And so you can see the cycle continues. So I had very high blood pressure and I had this issue with my kidneys. And so as a result of that, I thought, well, they're going to give me a whole pile of drugs. And sure enough, they gave me a whole pile of drugs, which had massive side effects. I felt dizzy a lot of the time, started putting on weight, felt very lethargic. None of it really suited me. And so I started looking at ways in which I could maybe tackle it myself through diet or exercise. And sure enough, diet and exercise are the things to be doing. So with a colleague at work in Cambridge, I started running and I started changing my diet so that I was eating more healthily. I was eating more vegetables, less carbohydrates, less sugar, etc., etc. A few years passed. I got really into running. I've previously been basically allergic to any form of exercise, but got really fit. My blood pressure came down a great deal. I was definitely within the healthy range. I was still, my BMI was a little bit high uh, and something I needed to to try and manage. And then I changed job and I started working locally in Ipswich and a month or two into working for the company in Ipswich, I suffered my cardiac arrest. So the day before I was on holiday, just having a staycation really, and I decided to fly my drone a little bit, did a bit of gardening, nothing strenuous at all. It was a Saturday. I'd done the park run in the morning. I remember that. And then went to bed. And at about, we believe at around two o'clock in the morning, my wife woke up. I was, is it called agonal breathing? I think we're sort of rasping. My wife woke up. And she tried to communicate with me. She said, Jonathan, are you there? What's going on? What's what's happening? And I didn't respond. And I just all she got was groans from me. My eyes had sort of flipped around to the back of my head. And she called 999. 
and uh, I'd stop breathing. And so the, I think the 909 operator said, tell me when he takes a breath in. And she said, he's not. And the 909 operator said, well, you need to perform CPR on him. You need to get him on the floor. So at the time, my two daughters, my younger daughters and my elder son were at home. So my wife woke my son up. I'm quite tall. I'm six foot three and a bit. And as I said, I was a little overweight. So getting me on the floor was not going to be easy. But they did. They got me onto the floor by the side of my bed. And my wife performed CPR while they waited for the paramedics to arrive. One of my other daughters woke up rather hilariously. My younger daughter didn't wake up at all during any of this. Even when the uh, paramedics arrived, she still remained asleep. They gave me CPR, I think, in total for about 20 minutes. And they gave me the paddles twice, I think. And after the second paddling, they managed to revive me enough to be able to give me some adrenaline and ship me off in in an ambulance off to Ipswich Hospital, which was obviously on a Sunday. It was a bank holiday as well, so lots of staff not around. They shipped me off to ICU. And I was in ICU, I think, for a few days. My wife stayed with me 24-7. She never left my side, constantly talking to me, constantly telling me positive affirmations about my, my experience. And we have a little hand signal between my wife and I. If we're in the cinema or we're having a, you know, a dinner party or, or anything like that, we have this thing where we could we hold each other's hands and we squeeze three times. And it just means I love you. One, two, three. I love you. One, two, three. And I was lying in bed in ICU and she, she was at the foot of my bed and I woke up and I had obviously tubes down my neck, tubes in my arms, tubes in places that, that are probably not appropriate to talk about on a podcast. <laughs> and she she said, do you know where you are? And I basically groaned, and she said, do you know what's happened to you? And again, I groaned, and I just apparently looked at her in the face and just tapped my shoulder three times, and that's the point that she knew that I was there. Before then, they didn't know if I'd suffered any brain damage. They didn't know if you know, I was going to recover or what state my brain was in. The brain scans, you know, were, had been inconclusive. They didn't find any drugs or any, or any cause or reason for my cardiac arrest. So they really didn't know what had happened. But this was the proof that my wife needed that I was still there, inverted commas, and was the, was the decision point to then bring me out of the induced coma that I'd been in for several days. And so, yeah, the risk was that if they took me out of the coma that I wouldn't be able to breathe on my own. I'd been hooked up to this breathing apparatus while I was in the coma. I was not breathing on my own. The risk is that if they kept me in that state, that it would cause further brain damage. But that if I didn't come out of that, if I if they brought me out of the coma, that I wouldn't be able to breathe on my own. But my wife made the decision that that I was there, that I had my brain function. And so they decided to take me out of the coma. And thankfully, I, I came round and was 
think it was a bit hit and miss, but I did eventually start breathing on my own. And soon after that was shipped off down to a cardiac ward where I, you know, I waited there for a week or so while they did more tests, more surveillance, more scans, et cetera, et cetera. Again, inconclusive. So I was shipped off again. By the way, awesome fun going in an ambulance at 70 miles, 70, 80 odd miles an hour up to Papworth backwards. Loved it. Don't particularly want want to be in this situation where I need that again, but it was great fun. Really enjoyed it. Anyway, (laughs) shipped off to Papworth where I lay in my bed and they were saying, you know, you're going to have this pacemaker ICD fitted and it felt very confusing. If I'm honest with you, I felt like a lot was happening. A lot of decisions were being made behind closed doors about the future, my future, and that I didn't feel really part of it. And I, f- I felt quite angry about it. Lots of people making assumptions about my recovery as well. I remember in particular, a cardiologist coming to my bed and saying, I see from our records that you're a keen runner. You need to put that out of your mind. You need to forget about that. You will not run again. You need to focus on getting better. Maybe think of a different sport, maybe darts or pool. And I just got absolutely furious. Now, this might have been very clever of him because I'm what they term a polarity responder. If someone tells me I can't do something, God damn it, I'm going to find a way to do it. So it might have been very clever of him, but it meant that I was then focused utterly focused on running. It's pretty much one of the first things that I started talking about when I came out of my coma was, you know, I feel fine. I want to go out for a run. And and this was just putting fuel on the fire. It just meant this is genuinely something that I want to get up and go out and do now. But there was also that anxiety around, I don't know what, what, what even does do the letters ICD stand for? What is it that they're putting under my chest? I know they're telling me that this is the right thing to do, but I haven't spoken to anyone that's had this happen to them before. I haven't uh, spoken to any patients or maybe other people that are going through the same thing. There was no one around me that was having the same thing happen to them. Relatively young chap, I was 38 at the time, just coming up to my 39th birthday. I, I needed some assurance. And so I remember laying in my bed Uh, I can see myself very clearly and looking on Facebook for some help. And I found a couple of Facebook forums that were in the US and they seemed very crowded and kind of noisy. And that wasn't what I was after. I wanted not one-on-one care, but I wanted a slightly smaller support group. And I found the Southern Cardiac Arrest Survivors Group, which at the time, I remember it was probably about, 20 people in there in total, maybe. Well, what you're talking about a sudden cardiac arrest UK. Yeah. When would that have been? You, you were August. The group started the beginning of May. And after a year, we had about 200. So I think there may have been a slightly more than 20. But yeah, you're right. It, it would have been very small compared to what it is now. Yeah, it felt very small. And it felt being able to see the posts, etc helped me a little. And I think I may have even posted up. I I haven't looked, but I'm in Papworth. Can someone tell me about ICDs? Can someone tell me about what's happening? And it was that kind of helped 
waylay some of the concerns and anxiety I had around ICD. I still didn't feel very happy about having an ICD fitted. There was still, it was still idiopathic and it was being put in as an insurance. It felt like an invasion. I didn't, I I wasn't very happy about it at the time. You know, in retrospect, it definitely was the right thing to happen. But having that support from the group was pivotal in me accepting that this was going to happen and that actually the outcome was going to be okay. And hearing from other people that, that, that had been through similar experiences that had had ICD fitted and had survived and that, that actually it had triggered that their ICDs had gone off and that they were being paced and all those types of things. Was, okay. So it does actually work and that there is value in having it stuck under my shoulder. And the one thing that was kind of at the back of my mind is I want to be home for my birthday. My birthday is at the beginning of September. And I just had it laser focused again that I wanted to be home for my birthday. And I think I I literally came home on my birthday. My dad came and picked me up and and brought me back to to Ipswich. And I just I think I just passed out. I was just absolutely zonked, so tired from the whole experience that I just passed out when I got home. But I was so pleased to be home for my birthday. Yeah, it's a very nice present to come home then. <laughs> yeah. You said you've zonked out, but were you fatigued for, for long? Yeah, a long time, actually. I was desperate for normality. I felt normal. I felt like I just wanted to go for a run. I felt like I just wanted to go back to work. I was going absolutely bonkers my brain was working overtime but my body just wasn't able to follow i was solving rubik's cubes i was solving sudoku problems like they were going out of fashion i just couldn't find enough for me to do at the time and so i wanted to return to work and like i said i I joined this new business they were being very supportive at the time they came to see me a couple of times And I said, I want to return to work. And they said, well, our occupational therapy team, we're switching them out at the moment. We're in this sort of limbo position where actually we don't have an HR slash occupational health function. So we're very much going to be led by you, Jonathan, in terms of when you want to return to work and how you want to return to work. And I said, well, I think I can return now. And it had been, I think that was the end of September, maybe? So just over a month? Yeah, a month after my cardiac arrest and I wanted to return to work and they said, well, if you think that's okay, fine. So I went back to work and I I was doing half-time. So I'd work in the morning and then at lunchtime I would go back home. A friend from work would drive me. It's only a mile and a half for me to get to and from work and normally I'd walk. But that wasn't seen as being terribly safe. And so they would drive me backwards and forwards for the first few weeks. It was a really bad idea. I shouldn't have returned as quickly as I did in retrospect. At the time, I would have been very angry that anyone was telling me not to go back to work. But I was belligerent. I wanted to be active. I wanted to be back to work, earning money, solving problems. And in fact, I think the business used it to their advantage. Part of Part of the role that I have is doing things called threat modeling. And threat modeling is where you take a system 
and you then attack it. You find all of the vulnerabilities within that system and you look to analyze each of those vulnerabilities in terms of the risk and likelihood, et cetera, et cetera. And you document it. So there's this big sort of diagram you create and then a nice sort of Excel spreadsheet of all the threats and risks and and then you sort of categorize them. There's specific ways of going about that. And they brought a system to me and they said, Jonathan, we want you to run a, a threat modeling exercise against this system. And so I did. And it took me a day or that part of that morning and created this diagram, et cetera, and handed that over to them and then went home. And the next morning I went back in and they said, hey, Jonathan, we'd like you to do a threat modeling exercise against this system. And it was exactly the same system, but because of the fatigue that I had and the memory loss that I was suffering at the time, I had actual-grade amnesia, I didn't remember that it was the same system. And so I did the threat modeling exercise again and listed out the threats, listed it, and essentially what they were getting was the same threat modeling exercise twice from two different consultants, essentially. So they could, <laughs> they could check to make sure that I hadn't missed anything. So yeah, they, they essentially got two consultants for one, which is very clever of them. <laughs> uh, had they spotted that you, you were having problem with your memory? Yeah, yeah, I could, certainly while I was in hospital, it was, I had this sort of rolling window of less than five minutes, two or three minutes usually, where if someone was in the room, I remember, well, I remember my wife tells me that when my cousins came into the room, not my cousins, my nephews and nieces would come into the room. I'd go, oh, hey, how are you doing? Hey, hey. And within two or three minutes, I'd look away and then look at them again and, oh, hey, how are you doing? So, you know, two minute rolling window approximately that has slowly extended over time. And certainly by the time I was going back to work, it was you know, a few hours that I could remember. Anything before that was just real faded memory. It didn't, I couldn't really see anything, any, certainly any detail. It was people sticking needles in my arms or, you know, angry conversations with consultants or whatever. I would remember those, but it was just sort of trying to remember what I'd had for breakfast that morning or trying to remember things that I might have done that morning. I just wouldn't have been able to tell you at all. You know, you could have put a gun to my head and I would have said, uh, you know, tell my wife and kids I love them. I have no idea what I've been doing for the last four hours. So, um, so just before you, you move on there, can yeah. I just ask, uh, it's five, almost five years now. So how, how mm. is your your memory now compared to back then? Because obviously, well, I, you're working at a top company and I imagine your cognitive abilities and your memory are very important to what you do. yeah. Sure. So mental gymnastics is important. Certainly before my cardiac arrest, I used to run memory hotels. If anybody knows what a memory hotel or a memory palace they're sometimes called. I used to run several of those to, to be able to remember volumes of information. Subsequent to my cardiac arrest, it, it, those have largely evaporated. One of the things that you need to do to be able to maintain those is to constantly go over them. It's like Memorex. Like if you don't if you don't replay through them, then you you tend to forget it. And so I lost a lot of that. And certainly my memory, I needed to rebuild the skills to be able to remember quantities and qualities of information. 
And the mental gymnastics actually tended to still be there. As I said, while I was in my hospital bed, I was doing Sudoku problems, solving Rubik's Cubes. I was solving people's crossword problems over the other side of the ward while visitors were coming in. I'd be having a conversation with my parents and then suddenly blurt out the answer to four across. So my cognitive ability was still there, but my memory was was still quite damaged. And we did have multiple consultations with the memory clinic over in Cambridge to try and work out what was happening. And they, they weren't able to find anything at all. So I guess it's difficult not having a baseline. But anyway, my cognitive ability and my memory have become much better. Are they as good as what it was before? That's a really difficult thing to answer. I don't know is the ultimate truth. I don't think I'm as quick but that might also be age. I don't know. I like to think that I'm pretty agile in terms of the way in which I think. Can I remember as much as I did? I don't think so. Not anymore. But you find tricks. I take many more notes than I used to now. I think I write down a lot more notes that I can then search through. I use OneNote on the computer or multiple other note-taking applications exist, but there, you know, I use lots of mechanisms for keeping notes that I can then search through at a later stage. So you created uh, coping strategies, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm what they call acutely dyslexic as well. So I've already have a whole bunch of tools to trick people into thinking that I'm not dyslexic. So I have lots and lots of ways, lots of little tricks that I use for remembering stuff or, or being able to overcome particular problems in what I think are the natural way of doing it. But when I try to explain it to people, they think it's a bit of a sideways look at a problem. What, what other uh, symptoms or problems were you experiencing after your cardiac arrest? So most of it was attitude, really. I mean, I did have, as I say, issues with memory, but my attitude changed. I became incredibly selfish. Looking back, I put myself ahead of absolutely everything. I wanted to run. I wanted to get out and I wanted to start working again. And I did both of those things to the sacrifice of my family and friends. And I'm not proud of it. And I don't think that it's something that people should simulate. I think that it was a bad, bad time in my life. And that was my coping mechanism was just to focus on me. And I, like I say, it was very selfish. I got very angry at people who tried to tell me that I was being selfish. I was not very helpful, I guess, for other people around me that might have been going through the trauma that I didn't go through. I didn't feel emotionally aggressed or I certainly didn't suffer from some of the PTSD that I know a lot of listeners may have gone through. I actually was fitter coming out of my cardiac arrest. I was more driven than I was before. Before I was complaining about my kidneys and complaining about the fact that I was finding it difficult to run and that I wasn't getting the goals that I wanted to get to and I was finding excuses for that. And now that I'd had a cardiac arrest, I'd literally died and bounced back from that. Now, you know, death was not an issue for me. I could now move past that and 
I could start living my life. And so I aggressively took life by the throat and was wringing it for every single ounce that it could give me. And I wanted to give a little back as well. I wanted to make sure that those people that had been an active part of the chain of survival for me got the recognition for the fact that they'd done that. And yes, it was their jobs, but equally they'd given me a great deal of care and I wanted some recognition for it or wanted them to have some recognition for it. And that's so that's one of the reasons that I did some fundraising. So all of this happened in August of 2015. And at the beginning of 2016, I started running again properly. So during the whole of 2016, I ran a thousand miles. And in April of 2016, myself and a friend, Gary Jarvis, organized a fundraising event, which we called the Hard and Fast Relay, which ran from Cambridge to Ipswich. So it was essentially my travel home from Papworth to my hometown. And yeah, so we organized this relay. It was run over 10 segments. We got loads of runners involved. I think we had sort of 60 or so odd runners involved. So it was divided into 10 segments. We had teams of people running uh, across the countryside to get back home. I forget how long it took. It doesn't matter how long it took. I ran the first segment and I ran the last segment. So the last segment was about 10K or so. And I ran that with the paramedic that had was first on scene and had given me the, the electric paddle jolt back to life and had been there with my wife as she was giving CPR. So that was really important. Uh, I ran it with my brother as well as my son. So it was it was an important event for me to to go through and to do that fundraising for the British Heart Foundation, for the Ipswich Hospital Charity, and for uh, Papworth. And in total, I think we raised more than £6,000 for oh, those three fantastic. charities. Yeah, and £6,000 tends to sort of raise the eyebrow of certain media outlets as well. And I was very happy to get some exposure for it. So through and off the back of that, we had a campaign which we started in Ipswich and Suffolk with BBC Radio Suffolk to start a campaign of providing free CPR sessions across the county. So we had, I think originally we scoped three sessions uh, across Suffolk and there was a torrent of people wanting to do it more than we could cope with and we ended up putting on, I think, 10 at the end of it. 10 sessions of CPR training. And it's something which is now done annually through BBC Radio Suffolk. So they have an annual campaign where where they promote CPR across across the board. And, and several local celebrities have now had cardiac events, which have meant that they've, they've become the new face of, of, that, of that campaign, which has been great. And some of those people are are in the Southern Cardiac Arrest Group. So it's great great to see that work continuing. Passing on the good luck, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good to have a fresh perspective on it as well, not just my slightly old and faded perspective on things, but to have it sort of very real and vivid in people's minds that this only happened a few weeks ago, a few months ago, etc. is really important. Um, but Exactly. That, 
the fact that they're happening all the time, as you say. Because just before you get before you mm. carry on, there is just go back to what you were saying about your attitude when you came out and you were quite selfish and driven and worthy. Mm. I mean, I don't want to diagnose you, but uh, some of those uh, attributes are known to come from sustaining a brain injury. So I don't know, you know, whether some of that could be explained because of that. And also your, the, the name of your your sponsored uh, event, Hard and Fast, is it was that not only the name of the event and CPR, but also about you. Were you hard and were you fast then? <laughs> well, so I think it's interesting that to see that other people have suffered in a similar way and had that selfishness streak. I think that's interesting. I'd probably like to dive into that a little bit deeper and understand it. Certainly at the end of 2016, uh, I had several discussions with my wife and family and made a bit of a concerted effort and actually dropped a lot of the running. So I started detraining and decided to focus on my family first and on my career and yeah, just span everything around and, and pretty much stopped running entirely. But the hard and fast was from the British Heart Foundation, Vinnie Jones advert, who was talking about delivering CPR as being hard and fast. And that actually that that phrase worked very well for running that it was going to be hard it's a long distance and we wanted to complete it as quickly as we could so hard and fast i hadn't really considered it as being a subject for me in particular it wasn't i didn't like i say i didn't find my recovery necessarily hard uh, maybe was quicker than it was supposed to be but i never really applied hard and fast to myself Again, maybe I should be diving into that. <laughs> I was only done jokingly. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, no, the personality changes and emotional swings are, are, are common after a brain injury or an event like a cardiac arrest. So, it, you know, I wouldn't necessarily all put it down to your own um, selfishness, <laughs> as, as you called it. So, yeah. Cut yourself some slack, although I'm sure it wasn't very easy for you or your family at the time. And before we just go back on to the running, could you sort of contrast what you've gone through just recently with how your cardiac arrest was for for both you and for your family as a whole? Are there similarities or are there big differences? Sure. So the... Cardiac arrest was a single out-of-the-blue event. Um, there was no warning that it was going to happen. There was no, there were no clues that, that something was on the horizon. It happened. I wasn't there for it, is what I continue to, to say. My wife had to deal with the trauma probably the most. And then the remainder of my close family and friends had to deal with that trauma. And I really didn't. I, for most of the traumatic component of my cardiac arrest, I was absent. And so the healing, although the focus medically and clinically was on me, I, f I felt at the time, and I still continue to feel that the support wasn't there for my family. My, certainly my kids really suffered they still have issues to date that are unresolved. Certainly one of my daughters has, has really struggled through it as well. And one of the son that was there on the, on the day has really struggled as well. So 
they have not had the support. And certainly my wife has, has still struggles with nightmares of the, the, the day. So they're still going through that trauma. And I definitely wasn't there for it. And as soon as I came round, I was laser focused on what I wanted and needed to do. Whereas with my cancer, there was a bit of a run up to it, right? So we had the lump, we had the clinical diagnosis, we had biopsies, we had sort of a few months during which we knew that there was a possibility that cancer was on the horizon. We knew that was an option. And, you know, once we got the diagnosis, you know, nothing's changed. As soon as you get the diagnosis, it's like, okay, so now we know what it is and now we know where we've got to go and what we've got to do. And that it's the treatment that's the hard bit. The cancer is not really the hard bit. It's going through that radiotherapy and and chemotherapy. And I was definitely awake for it. They could give me as much fentanyl as they like. I was still very much conscious, very much aware of the pain. Having the tube fitted to my stomach so that I could be fed, I remember every single moment of that. I remember the feeling of the needle as it punctured through my my into my stomach i can still feel it today and that you know waking up at two o'clock in the morning and vomiting buckets of blood i remember that absolutely and acutely i definitely went through a trauma and i can admit to it here but i had counseling following on from that i was not okay emotionally i was um in a very broken place i probably and obviously this has not been clinically diagnosed but i probably have ptsd as a result of it i can admit to you now that most days i have to clock out of work for 10 15 minutes and cry it's i they just sort of build up on me i can't predict when they're going to happen. They just happen randomly. They can happen in the middle of a conversation, middle of constructing an email, middle of watching a TV program. There doesn't seem to be cause, rhyme or reason as to why or when they happen. I just burst into tears. For 10 or 15 minutes, I lack all composure and can't cope. And it's really debilitating. Admittedly, more recently, it's become better. I've got a few coping strategies for it so I can manage it. It used to be that it was happening, you know, three or four times a day. I've now got it down to maybe once a day, once every couple of days, thereabouts. So I'm slowly finding my way around it. But like with everything, I'm diving deep and I'm finding ways of coping, looking for support groups, looking for opportunities to to help make it go away, inverted commas, and trying to help other people who might be going through a similar thing. So your initial question was, what are the differences? I think they're entirely different. They're completely different. I didn't go through the trauma of my cardiac arrest. My wife did. And although my family and friends have gone through some of the trauma of my cancer, I think it's been much I've lived in the moment. I've lived through the cancer much more than I ever did the the cardiac arrest. Yeah. And it was a real sort of Damoclesian sword against my throat. It was going to kill me if I didn't do something about it. Whereas with the cardiac arrest, I'd survived it. I'd had my cardiac arrest. I'd moved on. I've now got this metal box under my shoulder. That's my insurance against it ever happening again. Uh, You know, 
I, I, I think I mentioned to you at the time, I feel like I'm immortal, right? You know, life can throw anything it likes at me and I will survive. I will get through it. I know that now for sure. And that's how I've got to keep thinking. I know I'm going to keep thinking that. Do, do you think someone's out to get you somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> Someone said to me when I, when I, when a colleague at work actually said to me, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy when I had, when I got diagnosed with my cancer. Yeah, it feels like, you know, my kidney condition is, is fatal if it's not uh, diagnosed and managed properly. Cardiac arrest obviously is very obliquely catastrophic to someone's life and the cancer as well. Yeah, I think I should start playing the lottery. I there's that that saying, isn't there? Three strikes and you're out. But you're still here. (laughs) I am still here. Maybe I'm a cat. Maybe I've got another. Maybe I've got another six to go. God hope I don't. Well, um, well, I was going to say, I hope you don't have to go through anything else like you've gone through so far. Yeah. Just going back to the, the, the thing that you touched on, which is the, the crying or the emotional uh, instabilities, did, did you experience, is that only since the cancer or did you experience any of that since the cardiac arrest? Because I, I was a lot more emotional and I had bouts of, of crying and I know other people have, have experienced that as well. And again, that's a, a, a known symptom of, of having a brain injury. Do you, could that be linked together, do you think? I don't know. I mean, we can posit and make sort of all sorts of guesses. I don't think we'll ever really know the truth. It's possible that the cardiac arrest put me at an imbalance, that the cancer then just tipped me over the edge. Like I say, there there doesn't appear to be rhyme or reason. I'm not thinking about anything in particular that causes me to suddenly burst into tears. I don't know. It just is happening and. So, I mean, I could start talking about the neurolinguistic programming stuff that I've done in the past, but I'm using a lot of those tools, the neurolinguistic programming components of some of the research that I've done to help overcome some of the difficulties that I've had. So maybe it's just been suppressed since the cardiac arrest. My personal feeling is it probably isn't. I did feel like I didn't go through a trauma I didn't have any sort of emotional difficulties other than the selfishness that I appeared to have in my behavior following on from my cardiac arrest. And and really, I think the cancer tipped me over the edge. It really was just, well, 10 weeks of just persistent and sustained trauma, pain and uh, discomfort. It was just awful. Never want to go through it again. I, I I remember thinking mid you know as i'm as i'm sort of on the downward slope coming out of recovery i remember thinking that before my cancer i used to hear about stories of people that had had cancer and then it had come back and that they had decided or elected not to have chemotherapy and radiotherapy and i remember at the time thinking that's incredibly selfish you have an opportunity to survive you have an opportunity to be there for your loved ones and you're choosing not to and having gone through that now i totally get it totally understand why someone would elect not to go through chemotherapy and radiotherapy it is brutal utterly brutal and i do think that is probably the thing that has caused the emotional difficulties or stability issues as you say since then and i have coping mechanisms for it 
you know, we've all got mute on our phone on our video conferencing software, and we all have the ability to write a little note to someone that might be there and just say, I just need to take 10 minutes comfort break. I'll be back in a minute. So have coping strategies. It sounds incredibly tough what you've been through. You you put it into uh, words very, very well, and you've got a great way of relaying the what you've been through really when i when i got diagnosed obviously i had to tell the business that this had happened and i wanted to tell some of the colleagues that i was working with very closely and i wrote a letter and the the opening line of it was i do not want any pity this has not happened as a result of something i've done this is just you know the world slapping me around the face again. I will bounce back from this. It's not going to stop me. Uh, I will be back. But please, please, please don't have any pity for me at all. It's. I just want support. I want your understanding that I'm going through something difficult, but I don't want to hear people say I'm sorry because you don't know what that means. Sorry doesn't help anybody what does help people in recovery is coming around and cooking meals, coming around and having a cup of tea, coming around doing the ironing or dusting or vacuum cleaning, doing the shopping, going out for walks with me. Those types of things are the supportive things. I don't want to hear pity. It doesn't help, in my opinion, anyway. <laughs> I mean, you're talking perhaps from points of experience, perhaps from going through the SCA recovery. Have you got any other sort of, has your experience of going through the SCA helped in your um, recovery from cancer in other ways? I think, you know, having spent a long time in hospitals and going through the diagnoses process, having needles pricked in me left, right and centre, having to talk to friends and family about where I am, what's going on, there were definitely things that I repeated the second time around and definitely things that I knew I'd missed during my cardiac recovery that I wanted to do during my uh, cancer recovery because I had an opportunity to change something there. So so a, a good example of that was I knew I was going to lose my voice. I knew that going over the experience of my treatment, were, I'd have to you know, tell lots of people about it. I didn't want to put it on Facebook because, again, I didn't want pity for it. I just wanted people to have the data. I wanted to know, them to know I was okay. And so I created a little video log. Every couple of days, I would just record a video saying what was going on with my treatment, how I felt, what I was up to, what was happening next, that type of thing. It would last sort of 10, 15 minutes max. And I'd put it up on YouTube and I'd then hand the link out to friends or family that wanted to know what was going on. And it meant that they could keep in the loop, but it also meant that I wasn't receiving, oh, I'm so sorry for blah, 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 or lots of people hitting like, or I just didn't want that noise in my life. I just wanted people to talk about the questions that they might have for me during my recovery and during my treatment so that I didn't have to repeat myself. All of the data was there. And if they had other questions, they could either put them in comments or they could pick up a phone and call me or they could come round to the house and have a chat. There were lots of, it, it created a real sense of a, a diary for me that other people could use 
as I was going through my recovery. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant idea that you you had there. I can totally understand not wanting all of the the deluge of comments and and, and likes as you as you mentioned. Uh, yeah, a great idea. I think other people going through a similar thing should do something similar. Really. Yeah, and and it's also oddly had some side effects that I didn't think about at the time. I made the link for that. So if you want to go and find it, it's called JJ's Cancer Journey. And it's a public link. So anyone can go and find it. If you type in cancer throat Ipswich or cancer throat Suffolk, you'll probably find it. And certainly some people have. And they've reached out to me and they've said, I've recently had a diagnosis of cancer of the throat. And I'm worried about the treatment that I'm going to receive. Thank you so much for putting the diary up. Me and my wife have gone through every single one of the videos it's taken us six hours to go through every, all of your videos, but now we understand what the journey looks like. We know what kinds of things to expect. And I think if I'd had that for the recovery, both as a consumer, but uh, like so, if someone else had had that out there, but also as someone diarising my own recovery through my cardiac arrest, I think it would have helped because my memory was shot. I still don't remember a lot of the time that was, I was in hospital and it would have been nice to have had a diary to see what I was up to, what what was happening, how I was feeling, what I was thinking at particular times or particular stages. And I don't have that. I've lost that. Yeah, um, you've got to remember, though, you can't remember what when the, on those days that no. you're in hospital. So you would have, would have had two weeks of the same video. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very true. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that wouldn't have been very helpful. Just the same <laughs> video, you know, 24 times. No, that wouldn't have been helpful. <laughs> One of the things that I, I do remember about you after your cardiac arrest and sort of going through, uh, or you, you've said you haven't really had that many um, sequelae from it, but I do remember you being quite nervous about traveling or almost being agoraphobic, is it? Can, can you tell me a little bit of that? And, and the, your journey has really impressed me in that you, you had those troubles because we were trying to arrange meetups and you you, you kept uh, not being able to make them or, mm. or um, for, for various things. And you say you wouldn't go on the train or you're very nervous to go on a train on your own. But now, as you, you mentioned, prior to all of the COVID stuff and everything, you're working in, in the city of London, a mm. big, big company, and I suspect you probably travel around the world and things like that. So h- how have you gone from, you know, not being able to do go on a train or go out to, to doing all of that? Yeah, so it again all stems from the cardiac arrest and the revocation of my driving license. So obviously they took my driving license off me. Perfectly reasonable for them to do that. I used to drive to work. But as I say, I'd started working locally in Ipswich. So I was walking in to work most days anyway, and was self-propelled. So I was cycling or walking or running most places. And as I said, running became really a focus for me. And once I got my license back, I didn't feel comfortable behind a wheel. As I mentioned earlier, I do, you know, threat analysis, threat modeling all the time. And I imagined a scenario where I'm driving 
on my own to work and I have a cardiac event. So that could be the ICD going off inappropriately, or I actually have a valid cardiac arrest and the ICD needs to kick in. Now, there's a, there's a period of unconsciousness associated possibly with both, certainly with one of those. And if I'm driving at 70 miles an hour down a motorway on my way to Heathrow or wherever, I could potentially take out a couple of families of four or all sorts of things. So while it's unlikely, we say, the actual cost, the impact of that vulnerability is very high. Likewise, when traveling on trains, if I'm on my own and people don't know that I have an ICD under my shoulder and the same were to happen, how would the emergency services get to me? If I'm on a train from Ipswich to London that doesn't stop and I'm on a train for an hour, how is an ambulance going to get to me? It's going to be impossible. So on the basis of a a threat modeling exercise and a risk analysis, I felt very uncomfortable with the fact that I could either deprive my family of my existence or multiple other people of their families. And so decided that I really didn't want to drive. I really didn't want to take any risks at all. And so I stopped driving. My car sat in my driveway for several years and just didn't drive at all. And even when I'd have someone else in the car, I would drive maybe to the shops, but nothing more than that. If we were going anything more than sort of 30 miles an hour, I'd say someone else can take over and drive. I'm not interested. And so that risk is still there, but my ICD hasn't gone off. It hasn't shocked. It hasn't paced. It hasn't done anything, right? So it's under my shoulder. I haven't had any further episodes appropriately or or inappropriately. So I think that the likelihood of it happening has reduced considerably against where I thought it might. I, I thought it might go off maybe once or twice a year, right? But it hasn't gone off since 2015. So in five years, I've not had a single further episode. So I would say the, the risk of it happening, although the the impact is still quite high, the risk has reduced. And and so I started traveling on the train a bit more because I felt that that was a way that I could, yes, there was still risk to my family that we couldn't get an ambulance to me or whatever, but at least I wasn't impacting other people that were on the road. And I then sold my car, actually. I had during my cancer treatment, I just was like, well, I'm never going to drive again. Let's just get rid of it. I started getting very cathartic, just throwing stuff out, getting rid of a great deal of stuff. So I got rid of the car, a uh, little, little, uh, a three litre V6 Audi A4. That's what it was. I had it from new and uh, yeah, I got rid of it, sold it. And then during my recovery, my dad said to me, you know, once this is all over, is there something you'd like to do? And I said, well, you know, I've seen there's a new car showroom in, in Cambridge. I'd quite like to go to and, and have a look at this new car. And he said, oh, that'd be interesting. So over we went and we had a test drive in a Tesla Model 3. And I wasn't allowed to drive. Obviously, I was still had a, a great deal of drugs in my system. And yeah, I sat in the back and I loved it. And the bit that was important for me was 
I said to the the sales guy, I said, what would happen with the auto driving capability that's in the car? If I took my hands off the wheel, if I fell unconscious, what is going to happen to the car? And he said, fine, let's do it. And so you take your hands off the wheel and it starts making lots of bleeping and lots of noises, like put your hands back on the wheel. And it then slows down. It continues to follow the road, but then it slows down, pulls over at the side of the road. Even if there's traffic in front of it, it will slow down for that other traffic, pulls in at the side of the road, stops and puts the hazard lights on. It's perfect. (laughs) This is exactly what I need. This is going (laughs) to stop me killing people if I fall unconscious. So yeah, I put my order in and, and just before the lockdown, I received my new, my new Model 3 and I love it. I've driven up to Dundee and back in it. I've driven all over the shop in it. I love it. It's, it's new freedom. It's, and I'm now cycling a lot as well and desperately trying to get out and do some running once this COVID-19 stuff is gone, but trying to keep my fitness up as well. Still, still keeping with the self-propelled life, but I now can drive again because that risk is managed for me. That is amazing. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about Teslas and the ability that they've got and how that could, what impact it could on a positive way to someone like yourself and, and me who's got a fear of uh, of going back in the car. That's amazing. It's amazing what, what we can do with technology these days and, and what we'll be able to do in 10, 20, 30 years' time. Yeah, it's fantastic. Unfortunately, not everyone can afford a Tesla. I've got three. No, no. They are quite expensive, there's no doubt. But again, I did I did my risk analysis and did the sort of sums. I mean, essentially, you're, you're paying for the fuel up front. So, so long as you've got some capital to be able to do that, then it's, it's very easy to, to justify the purchase of an electric vehicle. I, I, I think it's fabulous. It's fabulous fun. But it's, you know, save the planet, all those sorts of things are a bit secondary to me. It's the risk management part of it that that really sort of was the tipping point for me to purchase one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I think you're yeah, wholly justified in, from just from a personal point of view, but also what you've gone through in, in, in the last 10 years or so, because mm. you, ne- you never know when it's all going to end, really, do you? So why not do some of the things that bring a buzz to life again? Absolutely, 100%. Why put off tomorrow what you can do today? I, you know, I, I see my kids spend a lot of time playing computer games and those types of things, and I still like playing computer games, but I, any activity I get involved in nowadays, I, I always sort of justify it and say, if I'm on my deathbed or I pass away tomorrow, will I have regret that I haven't done more of it? Will I have regret that I haven't played more computer games in my life? And I think the answer is no. Will I regret that I haven't done watercoloring or I haven't recorded that song that I wanted to record? Yes, I would have regret. And so those are the things that I tend to put on my roadmap as as doing those things ahead of those other sort of passive things. I mean, you, you showed that you're a talented artist the other day when you po- posted some a picture of your eye. That was brilliant. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I well, talented, I don't know. But I certainly certainly wanted to be uh, an artist uh, when I was younger. In my teens, I, I wanted to go and do art school and I wanted to be a musician as well. 
And uh, the school I was at didn't do uh, music GCSE and they didn't give me very good grades in art. And so that was that was me. That was the die cast for me to go into IT and into uh, security, unfortunately. But yeah, I pick up the brush every now and then and I still play guitar very regularly. So I, I always try and find ways of making sure that I keep on top of those things that really matter in my life and put those on my roadmap of things I want to be doing at the weekends, etc. And And the watercoloring, I haven't picked up a brush for watercoloring in about three years. So it was really important for me to schedule some time for that because it matters. It's important. And I would have regret if, if I don't do more of it. And and I think the enthusiasm that I've received for for that for, for drawing that eye and for other pieces that I've done recently really spurred me on to do more of it. So thank you for the like. <laughs> I will be sure to pick up my watercolouring brush and paints again soon. It's not an ambulance coming for you there, was it? <laughs> uh, no, I live on probably one of the busiest roads in, in the country, actually. And there are ambulances driving up and down all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, an, an unfortunate uh, side effect of where I live. But obviously, hopefully they can get to you quickly. If exactly, you need exactly. <laughs> well, just going back to the art, though, it, it, it's very therapeutic in, in its own right. And they say, you know, after a, a traumatic event, doing something like music or or art are, are very good and healing for you. So you, you're wise to pick up that paintbrush again. Yeah, and, I, and my guitar, actually, after my cardiac arrest, was a, a source of a great deal of frustration. I'm reasonably good. I'm what they call consciously uh, incompetent. So uh, I know how bad I am. And I can see goodness and, and that, that other people are better than me and understand that they're better than me. But after my cardiac arrest, I essentially lost the ability to play. I just... Because it's there's there's three senses, there's three things going on when you're playing guitar. You're listening. You're using one hand. You're using one hand to play, and you're strumming with the other hand for the rhythm. And you're listening to the rhythm as well. So you're listening to the piece of music. You're reading a piece of music. You're playing. So all of your senses are involved, other than taste, um, involved in in playing. And it's, it was too much. I couldn't do it. And I became incredibly frustrated that I couldn't do it to the point that I actually dropped it and I stopped playing entirely. And I had a conversation with uh, my now late guitar teacher and he said, you know, you just got to keep going at it. You, you will, it's, it's there, it's in your muscles, it's in your neurology. It is there, it's just latent and you just need to give it a bit of time. And thankfully, he was right, and I managed to push through, and and I'm playing again. And it's interesting, listening to some of the recordings that I recorded, even a few days before my cardiac arrest, I recorded a couple of songs, and and listening to my ability to play now, I would say I'm a better guitarist now than I was then, through the fact that I've had to almost relearn, but relearn the neurology that, that I had. Uh, to play the guitar. So yeah, absolutely. It is incredibly therapeutic to to take up art in some way, shape or form, be that music, be it writing, 
be it painting, whatever it is, I encourage anyone going through recovery to pick up something and be creative with it. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And you, you touched on writing there. I don't know if you, have you done any writing, but I just thought it's probably worth mentioning about the piece that your wife, Sasha, did about your cardiac arrest event, which features as the first main article in the Life After Cardiac Arrest Volume 1 book, which is an excellent piece in its own right, especially as English, as I understand, isn't her first language. No, it's her tertiary language. So Italian is her mother tongue, French is her secondary tongue, or might even suggest German is her tertiary tongue, but she's certainly got English is not her first or second language, and she does very well. I would even say, you know, opposites attract. I do not read books. I just don't read novels. I can read a manual. I can dip in and out of something, but I think it in total in my life, I've probably rest, read three novels in total. And I think the last time would have been more than 10 years ago. And in terms of writing, I've tried to write down my experience of my my cancer. I know that the cancer team, the radiotherapy team, want me to write down my experience because it's not an easy experience for people to go through. And having it in a diary form is helpful for them to show to to patients, etc. And I've tried to write it down, but I find a great deal of difficulty. I don't have a great deal of competence. And I think I may have to rely on my wife or other support to help me, you know, diarize it or at least document it in some way that's that people are going to be able to absorb it. I think there's value in me doing it. I just currently don't have the skills or competence to be able to do it and, and give it justice. Mm-hmm. You, you, you touched on the, the support from the, the cancer people there. I imagine the, 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 the cancer support world, because there's several big charities in that space, what can uh, cardiac arrest groups like Southern Cardiac Arrest UK learn from the cancer support? What, what have cancer support groups given you that you didn't get from a cardiac arrest support? So there was a very clear journey for my cancer treatment. It was very clear what was going to happen. I was going to have, you know, I was going to have biopsies. I was going to have a PET scan. I was then going to have an MRI. And off the back of the MRI, I was going to have this face mask thing made up. I was going to be clamped to this desk. I was going to have radiotherapy. I was going to have... Ki- so the, the journey was kind of planned out. It was very clear. And, and I have two large booklets and uh, a DVD and there's support groups around you. You're constantly asked, is there anything we can do? How are you feeling? And I just didn't have any of that for my cardiac arrest. Cardiac arrest, you get a couple of British Heart Foundation leaflets and that's it. I could I could even show you the thickness of the the wad of information that I received around cancer of support groups people wanting to help fundraising exercises those types of things in contrast to the story that I've had around my cardiac event and it's you know it's it's a stark contrast I would say there really wasn't a journey for me to understand or or to go through it was okay, you're out of hospital, you've got this insurance under your, your your chest, off you go, have fun. And it didn't really provide a support.
support group for me. I mean, obviously there's cardiac rehabilitation that goes some way to do that, but I just didn't feel that there was a support group there. And certainly in Ipswich, I've started the ICU steps group in Ipswich, which helps those people that have gone through ICU and have come out the other side and helps them, helps give a forum to talk in person about that experience. And that's been really valuable. I'm a founding member of that group in Ipswich. And I think that's gone on to help numerous families and other survivors of ICU. And that's been really personally a a, a big deal for me to get involved in, into that work. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Well done. The the support that you got in the cancer arena, was that from the the hospital or particular charities? Do you want to say who who Um, they were? So, I mean, obviously there's Macmillan there always. I mean, the the nurses are called Macmillan nurses. So, you know, that charity is right there from day one. In fact, even before day one, because as soon as they know that you're going to have chemotherapy or radiotherapy, the nurse is there. Even before you've had the treatment, the nurse is there saying, we're going to be there with you, holding your hand. You can trust us. We've gone through this before. We can lead you through it. It's not going to be a problem. Macmillan nurses are absolute angels without wings. They're amazing. And the radiotherapy team as well. I mean, I did fundraising for the radiotherapy team. They have their own charity within the hospital. They were saints, totally amazing. They went above and beyond to, to help me through uh, and get me through the, the trauma that I went through and the treatment that I was going through. Absolutely amazing. They did things that I didn't think that, that they were able to do. They would, they would deliver my medication to me, to my front door from the hospital. They personally would get in their car and deliver it to my front door rather than me coming to collect it. Just astounding levels of uh, dedication to, to my recovery. Um, very, very thankful for all of that. Cancer research obviously continues to do a great deal of work into helping solve cures, different cures for different types of cancers as well. But I still continue to work and help out the British Heart Foundation at a corporate level. So I do a lot of, I've done some hackathons for the British Heart Foundation, helping them to solve some of the problems that they've got at a corporate level through some of the connections that I've got within uh, enterprise. So I I continue to, at CPR, I've trained more than a thousand people now within Amazon in doing CPR. You will have seen some press coverage of that at the beginning of the year where the delivery staff are being trained uh, in CPR. All of that is off the back of initiatives that were started through me. Uh, and through initiatives that have spun out from that as well. So continuing to support CPR tuition and the spread of that that training and just around cardiac issues in general, helping people understand what they are and how they can be prevented through diet or or uh, warning signs to look for. So, yeah, still right at the forefront of my mind. Yeah, you've done amazingly. Well, I need to get you on board. You need to... <laughs> Help us a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Just tell me what you need. <laughs> I will do. Don't worry. Don't you worry. You'll be uh, receiving an email very shortly. <laughs> I'm very conscious that I've taken up quite a lot of yeah. your time. I, I, could, I could go on all day talking to you, Jonathan. You've got so many uh, insightful things to say and had such a, an interesting journey this past 10 years or so. Yeah. Um, 
Have you got any other sort of tips or, or advice for other survivors and family members going through either the cancer or the cardiac arrest or perhaps things that overlap both of them? Yeah, sure. As I mentioned before, I used NLP quite a lot during both recoveries to, to help me recover. One of the important things that I used before my cardiac arrest and have used great measure throughout my recovery was the framing of advice that I would get. So it's really important for me when people would give me advice or tell me that certain things were going to happen, that I'd decide whether I wanted that to be true or not. Now, that sounds really weird. But if someone would say to me, you'll never run again, right? It's very easy to, if that's coming from a senior consultant, cardio consultant, it's very easy to just accept it and say, yeah, that's the truth. That's what's going to happen. I'll never run again. But you have to think about, is this, is it a positive suggestion that this consultant is giving me? Are they telling me because, are they telling me that because they don't want me to run right now or that, that I need to focus on something else? Or are they actually telling me that I should never run again? So, I would always take every single piece of advice or thinking or any type of therapy. I would always query it. Is this a positive suggestion for me? Is this a positive thing? Is this going to enable me to do something or is it going to restrict me? And if it's going to restrict me, I don't want it in my life. If someone says eight out of 10 people will have this side effect, the the answer that I have to that is well, I feel really sorry for those eight people, but I'm not one of those eight people. I'm one of those two. I'm not going to have that side effect. And so being able to frame my my recovery and just helps me have a much more positive outlook on my recovery. So I could constantly, you know, dismiss anything that was a negative influence on my recovery and accept anything that was a positive influence on my recovery. Consultants don't know everything. They are wrong sometimes. I think we can all agree with that. Statistics are wrong all the time. Use that to your advantage in your own thinking and your own mentality. Only accept things that are valuable or beneficial to your recovery and reject everything else. That would be my primary piece of advice and something I continue to live with. You sort of summed that it was beautifully put, but you could sum it up with a positive mental attitude, really. Yeah, I think the problem with saying positive mental attitude is it can mean, well, you know, just be that laser focus, right? That was a bad thing to, for me to be doing. And, and it's better to, to be very judgmental about the different types of advice and the different perspectives on things. So it's, it's positive for what? You, you kind of have to retrospectively sort of say, well, is it positive for me? Is it positive for my family? Is it positive for my recovery? Is it positive? There's there's framing of that recovery and whether it's positive for all aspects of your life or only for one aspect of your life. And so that's the thing that I did wrong. I I framed it, is it positive for me? And, and accepted those things that were positive for me and excluded anything else. But those things that I accepted may not have always been positive for my family or for my recovery. 
And, and so those are things that in my more recent recovery, I have taken on board and I, I hopefully have been a little bit more focused on my environment and my ecosystem rather than, than on just me. I understand. I understand. So all of this is making you a much better person, perhaps, if that's possible. <laughs> yeah. So I am a faster runner now. My PB, I think before my cardiac arrest was about 27 minutes for a 5K. Following my cardiac arrest in 2016, the beginning quarter of 2016, I went through 23 minutes and 55 seconds for a 5K. So my cardiac arrest has made me a much more driven person. And every single swipe that the Grim Reaper takes at me will make me stronger. So, <laughs> yeah, bring it bring it on. <laughs> P- possibly not a training regime you'd recommend. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> you're not, no. <laughs> not going to see that in runner's world, are you? <laughs> no, no, you won't. <laughs> it's wonderful speaking to you, Paul. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to talk about my recovery. It's been it's been really good. I really value your time and I'm sure lots of people will get stuff out of this. I've got one last question, yeah, sure. which, if, if you've got any time for, which is you have spent probably uh, a lot more time than anyone else in isolation this past nine months or so. Have you got any tips for anyone in general for getting through living in isolation? Yeah. So is routine. Uh, that sounds really obvious, but have a routine. Do the, you know something in the morning, something afternoon, something in the evening, something that just keeps it ticking by that you're always looking four hours in the future, this thing is going to happen and just keep doing it. So one of the things is that I've got to do this afternoon is come up with a joke. I love puns. They keep me sort of occupied. And through my, my cancer treatment, every day I would come up with a new pun. And so coming up with puns, coming up with jokes just keeps me keeps my brain occupied, keeps it sort of, I don't know, it ignites a little creative part of me as well. So yeah, just keep doing those types of things, find regime and routine in your life. And it will just, it's like a, it's like running in a loop. You'll, after you've done like four or five loops, you won't remember how many loops you've done and time will pass very quickly. Well, uh, that's brilliant and uh, a great way to end this uh, absolutely fantastic uh, session with you, Jonathan. Thank you very much for imparting no your advice and what you've been through, because I can I can imagine that hasn't been easy. And basically, you are the ultimate survivor, as, as I see it. <laughs> well, I like the accolade. It's very kind of you. But again, I don't want any pity. No, none given here. <laughs> Just admiration. <laughs> cool. Thank, thank you very much. No problem. Thank you so much, Paul. Take care. Take care. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast, and I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the website SuddenCardiacArrestUK.org. And you can find us by Googling Southern Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider, such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest on Amazon. 
make sure you click subscribe and I'll speak to you next time.